Okay. Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from a sunny day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's episode, we return to the roots of the podcast and focus our attention on conservation issues directed towards the Russian Far East and the waterways surrounding the Sea of Oktost. In this episode, we will explore the Salmonid populations of the area, Hucho Taiman in particular, and examine some successful conservation initiatives. Today, we're very fortunate to be able to host Dr. Mikhail Skopitz, a prominent Russian fisheries scientist and the godfather of fly fishing in the Russian Far East. Dr. Skopitz was born in the Ural Mountain region in a town called Ekaterinburg in the former USSR. From 1977 onwards, he has been living in the Russian Far East. Dr. Skopitz is an adventurous fisheries biologist with nearly 40 years field experience in Russia. During his numerous expeditions, he was able to find four new species, two of them belonging to a new genus, including one Salmonid, a char, discovered in a meteor crater in Siberia. For Dr. Skopitz, catching a fish that is completely new, one that has never been described by anyone, there is simply no better thrill. Many fly fishermen talk about the excitement of the catch, but for Dr. Skopitz, it is the discovery. From 1994 through 2005, Dr. Skopitz worked with the Wild Salmon Center based in Oregon, USA. One of his most valuable contributions to conservation efforts over the years was his rapid scientific assessments of the rivers of the Russian Far East, which laid the future groundwork for protected regions in the area. Since he has left the Russian Academy of Sciences in 2007, Mikhail has been working independently as a scientist and expedition fishing guide. He is also a photographer and writer, regularly contributing to publications such as Fly Fishing Magazine, and is currently working on his new book, Fly Fishing Russian, the Far East. He continues to work with fly fishermen, collaborate with sport fishing clubs of the Russian Far East, and takes part in casting and fly, train, fly tying training programs. Dr. Skopitz, thank you so much for your time today, and welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, sir. So, uh, very good. Uh, so, I understand that fishing has been a lifelong pursuit for you. Uh, could we begin today's uh, interview by hearing how you became interested in and passionate about fish and fishing? Oh, it, it came uh, naturally. You see, I am kind of a black sheep in our family because everybody in my family is a musician or a doctor. Huh? Okay. Doctor. And, and so you uh, moved towards I was the fish. Interested, I was interested in wildlife, in nature, insects, fish, birds, etc. Since I, since five probably. At five, my father took me fishing. And then I kind of realized that this is what I want to do through my life. Uh, that's great. And that, that confirms uh, something that I've been uh, thinking about is that it seems that this uh, pursuit to be a, a, a very, very enthusiastic, passionate fisherman is something uh, that we have inside of us. It's, um, and it may not be a, a family trait. It's something that's unique, some sort of genetic blueprint. Yeah, sure. Some people like it and some, some don't. And you know many kids of excellent outdoorsmen and anglers are just city people. And they That's don't my... care about this and vice versa. Yes, my point exactly. In my, my case, point exactly. My, all my folks are city people. Okay. I spend most of my life outdoors. Ah, very good, very good. So what prompted the move then from the Ural mountain region uh, to Russia's Far East? Uh, 
now I see that that was the smartest move, the smartest decision of my entire life. Urals is an industrial region, which is not as good regarding the environment. The state of the environment is not great and the fish is not that big as you dream and <laughs> not very many places to explore. Right. We'll have to go on tracks of other scientists which were exploring that area for many, many years. Ah, uh, yes. So a very yes. industrial area but there. It's an industrial area. Yes. It has still lots of forests, lots of rivers, but it's what I really did know by the time I was graduating from the university. And I decided to go, we could say, to a new planet, to the area about which I didn't know much. I only read books and the books like uh, Jack London's Northern Stories or Diaries of Travelers, mostly Russian travelers, which were and also some Western travelers, which were exploring the Russian Far East. Okay, interesting. In then, 18th, 19th, and uh, beginning of the 20th century. Okay. So I decided to go and see by myself what's it about, the Far East. Sure. And now I see that it's, it was really a good decision for a future scientist, because I was able to explore many rivers which were never ever visited by either fishery biologist or sport angler interesting interesting so what's so special about the russians far east then um and, and why is this area so remote and uninhabited it's uh first of all it's far from everywhere it's far from everywhere Siberia for us, it's something very far west, which has railroads, big cities, etc. In the Far East, there are two cities uh, around six, seven hundred thousand people, like uh, Khabarovsk and Vladivostok, and several smaller cities. But both of the biggest cities are in the very south of the region. And the north is almost uninhabited. Mm. For instance, okay. the biggest city at about 60 degrees north is Magadan, which is only 90,000 people. Okay, okay. And that's and it's, it. All the rest are smaller, smaller towns. And, and Magadan is at the north end of the Sea of Okhotsk? North, yes, it's the northern yeah. shore of the Sea of Okhotsk. Okay. But the Far East goes very far from there, ending at the Bering Strait, which is very close to Alaska. Yes. I've been there. Yes. Curse eastward. That long part of Asia, long peninsula named Chukotka, which is almost joining the North America. Okay. It's coming about 40 miles to North America. I've been there standing on a cliff and on one day out of a week, I could see Alaska. Uh, the, the mountains in the distance. You could see yes. the mountains in the distance. Uh, yes. Just a 
this uh, narrow strip of land. The islands, the islands in the strait, yes. one of them is Russian, one of them belongs to the United States, and then the long strip of land, which was mm. named by the natives of our area, was named Big Land. It was Alaska, just blue strip on the and, horizon. And, and of course, uh, miles. it wasn't that long ago that we were connected uh, when the ice well, age yes, was in it place. Was, we were connected many times. Any time when the ocean goes down, ocean level goes down for 100 meters, 300 feet, this uh, there will be uh, land bearing land bridge will appear. Yes, yes. It it's was very... happening several times. Yes, yes. Very interesting. So many animals and the humans also could be able were able to cross it yes, on land. Yes. Yes. So if you, what is one element that really defines this region, uh, Mikhail? What is, what is, you know, what is uh, one term or, or something that's very defining of the entire region? I think it's the remoteness. Okay. It's very far from everywhere. Okay. Excellent. So what is the general uh, geography then uh, of that region uh, surrounding the Sea of Okhotsk? I, I assume that it was not glaciated, is that correct? Uh, you see, we are not, the region is not limited to the coast of the Sea of Okhotsk. It's also the coast of the Bering Sea. Okay. And of the seas belonging to the, uh, to the Arctic Ocean. Okay. East Siberian Sea and the Chukchi Sea. Okay. Bering Sea. And then in the south, we have Sea of Japan. Okay. You see, huge region, which is really hard to describe in one, in one phrase. It's big. It's something like, uh, if you speak about the coast of North America from California to Alaska. Okay, that's the same but, length that we're talking yes, about. Yes, about the same. Okay size but in the far east is more indented it has more big bays several seas and also a huge Sakhalin island huge Kamchatka peninsula yes etc yes. so it's much more complicated terrain uh, it's mostly mountains mostly mountains uh, they are only several, some mountain ridges are taller than one mile, mostly half mile to one mile. Okay. Um, okay. So, so the altitudes are not that great. Not more than 3,000 meters. It's a little below two miles. Okay. So not as big as uh, Denali Mountain in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. But still, mostly mountains, several big plains big marshy plains. In the north, it's uh, permafrost everywhere. Okay. The forest is mostly large. In uh, the south, okay. we have very lush forest of conifers and broadleaf trees that uh, in the south, but in the north, it's mostly large and stone pine or pine bush, okay. It's okay. a dwarf pine. And almost when, when, impenetrable in if you try to hike through it it's very hard to hike through 
And and when you say the South region, um, is that the region around uh, like Khabarovsk or is that uh, even further south? It's uh, named Primorye. It's the coast of the Sea of Japan between okay. Korea and the Amur River. Okay, okay. It's that strip of land between, or we could say between China and Sea of Japan. Okay, okay, okay. Good. And so then what is the what is the climate like um, in this region then? If we move from the south to the north, obviously it's getting more extreme. But in uh, the south, in the south, it's a very hot summer, long summer. So now in May, it's uh, above freezing. It quite often it's warm. From June to September, we swim in the Amur River, which could okay. be over 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So the climate is pretty mild, but the winter is harsh. Uh, about six, five to six months of snow, or six months from November till April, it's snow. If you go north from there, the climate will become much more harsh. In Magadan, for instance, Magadan is at 60 degrees north, but the climate is about the same as in Anchorage or Fairbanks. And that's because of the influence of the continental yes. air moving? Not only. Continent and also, you see, in the northern hemisphere, the eastern, east banks of the oceans, of both oceans, are much colder than the western banks, like you are comparing Europe and Labrador Peninsula. Yes, yes. It's the same as Alaska and Chukotka. In Alaska, you have forests at the same altitude when where in Chukotka, it's only uh, tundra, treeless yes. tundra. Seward yes. Peninsula and Chukotka are coming very close, but in the Seward, you have some even spruce forests. And in Chukotka, even no large along the uh, ocean. Too cold. And, and that's- it's Too cold we're, and wet. We're talking now about the- The, the, the Japanese, currents. The Japanese current, the which is bringing yes. the, the temperature. It's warming up Alaska and then Cold water is going down from the north along the Asian coast, and it's cooling it. Okay, okay. So in this remote region, then, are, are there challenges that fish populations are facing in terms of their, either their abundance or the survival, uh, you know, such as industrial activities or, or other issues? Well, most of the issues uh, are caused by the humans as usually, because the animals are well adapted. They are living for a long time in that area. And they are used to move north or south, depending on what's happening. For instance, there during the glaciations, they will be finding a refugia and survive the glaciations. But some of the things that humans are doing it's very hard to survive. For instance, the gold mining. Okay. It's a big issue in the Far East as well, same as in Alaska. And that's the uh, placer mining you're referring to? Placer mining and hard rock mining as well. Okay. okay. Hard rock mining is not that bad unless there is an accident. Uh, a normal working of a hard rock mine is much better than any placer mine. Sure. But if something goes wrong, it could be a disaster as well. Yes. 
Yes. And then is there logging in the region as well? Only in the south. In okay. the north, it's not worth to log. Okay. The forest is very sparse. And it's mostly along rivers. Luckily, in Russia, uh, it's one kilometer protected buffer strip along all major rivers, which are illegal to log. Well, that's that's a very interesting statement, uh, Dr. Skolpitz, because here in BC, uh, our limit is more in the 50 to 100 meter range. So it's interesting. I know, I know. And in Russia, it's still one kilometer along major rivers. And I know that the loggers are now trying to reduce that strip well. legally. They're applying into the parliament, uh, trying well, hopefully... to, to say that it's uh, too much, it's more than anywhere in the world, you don't need that much, etc. Well, but I would now lots of scientists I know now are struggling trying to protect those buffer zones. I mean, I think that's something that uh, Russia should be very proud of that you have a one kilometer buffer strip on your major streams. That's uh, if that had been in place in British Columbia, we probably would have seen a much greater abundance still of our salmonids. There's very few I, river I know, systems know. that, you know, we, yeah, in the past, I, I've seen. Mm -hmm. They've been logged seen, to the bank. Terrible. Sure. I've seen this in the uh, northwest of the United States. Sure. Of course. Say, say, yeah, same, same style of, of logging. And then what about commercial fishing? Do, is there uh, much commercial fishing pressure in the region? Oh, yes. Every, every salmon river, at least the bigger ones, uh, have uh, fishing at the mouth. Okay. And also, we have quite a lot of poaching in some regions, in some areas where there, are, there is population, because lots of people are dependent on uh, money coming from selling f salmon and caviar. Yes. And so, so that poaching is more specifically a caviar fishery, is that correct? Uh, it depends. Okay. Small teams which are backpacking or brought by helicopter into wilderness quite often take only eggs mm. people from the villages if they could uh, they take fish home and salt it or freeze it and also try to sell it or to use it for as food but in many cases yes it's caviar poaching okay it's just dissecting the females dumping males and taking only caviar yeah and where's the market for that? Is that a domestic market or is that exported? Uh, it's mostly domestic market because okay. uh, the caviar, illegally harvested caviar doesn't have any certificates. So it cannot be legally exported. Illegally, probably yes, I don't know. But it has huge Russian market. Because in Russia, for instance, when a Russian angler comes to Alaska or BC, he's re really very much surprised that American, Canadians, many of them don't prepare eggs, don't prepare caviar. They use eggs for catching fish or some just dump it. Yeah. 
or sell to fishing stores for processing into bait. Yes, yes. But in Russia, everybody knows how to make it, how to make uh, caviar. It's very easy. It's very easy to do. Just use some saturated salt solution. You and remove it is very, the it is very nutritious, dump. Oh, yes, it's, it's very easy to do. And you have, could have a great mm. product at home if you catch salmon. Yes, yes. And so is that, has that had an effect on population numbers with the, the, the caviar poaching? In many places, yes. Yeah. In many places, it has huge effect. And we have, uh, for instance, right now in the Amur River, which is a huge river, on some years, the salmon catch was 100,000 metric tons. Wow. And we have uh, 6 million square meters of spawning grounds, of salmon spawning grounds. But right now, this stock, the stocks, we could say that's a pink salmon, uh, summer chum, and fall chum. All these stocks are in a serious depression because of overfishing. Mostly commercial overfishing at the river mouth with fike nets, mostly. But also local fishing and poaching has also caused this altogether. And uh, very serious fishing from Ch in China because oh. along in Russia, the population is low. But when Amur comes to the junction with the Usuri, further up the right bank of the Amur and left bank of the Usuri rivers belong to China. And the Chinese fishermen are, commercial fishermen are very active. For instance, salmon is now coming up to the junction of the Amur Usuri. It's where the city of Khabarovsk is located. And further up, it's not coming very far because of extensive fishing in the Amur by Chinese. Salmon used to go up for 2,000 miles up the Amur, almost into Mongolia. Wow. Now, uh, it's, uh, it, it's never found that far up because of the Chinese fishing and because of the low numbers of the stock stocks in general. It was chum salmon run up to 3,000 kilometers up the Amur. Wow. Almost into Mongolia. Far into Siberia. Not anymore. And is, is that an ocean survival problem as well then? or They cause changes in the numbers as well. But what's happening now is that the spawning grounds along many rivers are not being filled by salmon. In, we have in many spawning grounds, we have only two to 5% of, of salmon entering them. Only two to 5% of what is supposed to be. Okay. Uh, two to five percent of the historic levels. Yes, of the well, levels which are optimal. 
too many salmon is not very good because they are destroying the reds of the the previously built reds but you have to have something like i don't know two salmon pair several square meters of the spawning ground right okay if you well, could have one salmon in several hundred square meters yeah I mean, we're we are down to uh about one percent of our former abundance in many systems so you're, mm -hmm. you're doing a little you're yep. doing a little a little bit better but it's sad to hear that things are uh that uh, that difficult there as well yeah and uh, the most expensive species like chinook salmon are disappearing first because yes. they are targeted chinook and sockeye so pinks uh, it's better with pink salmon because it doesn't have uh, strict homing so even right. if you destroy entire the entire store uh, population spawning population in one river next year it will uh, come yes yes from and, other rivers but and, in general in the south of the region uh, we feel now that the pinks are disappearing hmm. there are more of them in the north probably okay. this is probably the warming okay okay and we're we hearing some reports that um i guess both russia china and japan are introducing a lot of uh, chum and pink uh, fry into the into the saltwater from hatcheries, and this may yes. be uh, causing an over uh, consumption of the, the zooplankton and phytoplankton, and, and maybe competing with the natural, the wild salmon. Uh, you see, even in in the wild, I remember in nineteen seventies, in years when the pink salmon is very numerous. The size of pink salmon and also other salmon was slightly lower, the average size, than in the years when pink salmon is not abundant. So even in the in the in natural conditions, on some years it could be competition for food in the ocean. Okay. The ocean food is also not limitless. Yes. But with releasing very many fry from the hatcheries, uh, yeah, I agree that it, it could be causing some problems with the wild stocks. Right. Just increased competition, essentially. Yes, increased competition. And also, uh, southern parts of the ocean are probably becoming not very good for salmon in summer because lots of predators, warm water predators from tropical areas are coming. For instance, we now we see since the 1990s, we see white sharks along the coast of Sakhalin Island, for instance. Some other predators are coming and probably the areas are becoming not very good for salmon. They could move further north, but there are changes. There are changes for sure. And yes. some of them are natural. Some could be caused by humans. Hard to distinguish. Right, right. And it's certainly the, the overconsumption and the overharvesting is a human problem that we, that there's oh, no yeah. question there. Yes. Yeah.
And another problem which I see is uh, harvesting by marine mammals. Okay. For instance, in 1960s in Russia, only in one small district of the Khabarovsk region, about 2,000 of beluga whales were harvested annually. Now the harvest is uh, close to zero because of uh, all these international agreements. And I see that, and same about harbor seals and other seals. And now I see that the numbers of marine mammals and seals is increasing. It's drastically increasing in many areas. And I'm sure that together with over harvesting by humans, that could cause problems. More, more hungry mouths to feed. Exactly. And we certainly have a, a pinniped problem here on the West Coast and the same thing with the protection measures that have been put in place. Yes. Um, and for whatever reason, it seems like our killer whales have stopped consuming the seals or, or those killer whales that were more focused on harvesting the seals somehow have uh, dropped off in abundance. And so we have seen a, you know, per- perhaps a five to tenfold increase since uh, the late 60s, early 70s in terms of our pinniped populations. Uh, mm-hmm. And a study was, study was just released, which showed that somehow the, the seals have a preference for Chinook smolts. Uh, which could be accounting for our our rapid decline in Chinook populations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess the no animal is stupid, and if if the seal is enjoying the flavor of a Chinook smolt more than a sockeye smolt sure. or something sure. else, that's what they're going to be focusing on. So you're you're seeing something similar in your region with the the pinniped. Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. And the the biggest problem, yeah, we have the same problem with Chinook. Yes, which okay. is caused partly by overfishing, but partly by the seals as well, probably. And also the big problem is with salmon species running late because mm-hmm. of low water. You could have hundreds or thousands of harbor seals in the mouth of a tiny creek. So for coho and uh, steelhead, it might be a very big problem to pass that barrier. Right, right. I'm sure something should be done about that. I'm sure. And is is there a is there a harvest of the seals, or is, is there is there a legal? No, no. it's a, it's a harvest. It used to be harvested commercially and used okay. commercially in big numbers. There are, okay. there were vessels, etc. But now it's harvested only by the indigenous people for the local use. Okay. And, and what was the, the, the historic seal uh, harvesting? What were they using the, the meat or the product for? The skins, first of skins. all. Okay. Skins and oil and meat. Everything was used. For instance, the meat was used uh, for fur animals, feeding fur animals. Okay, okay. And also, I remember in 1980s, uh, meat of some of the seals was sold in the stores in Magadan. Uh, I like it. I was buying it. Also, the oil uh, had some technical use, uh, as far as I remember. And the skins were used 
the seal skins were fine and in Magadan they were processing into some clothing, some winter clothing. Okay. Very fancy coats and caps and hats. Sure. Out of harbor seals. Good for that region, waterproof and warm. Yes. Yeah. And pretty yeah. fancy looking. Sure, of course. I used nice to have design. One. Yes. <laughs> I used to have one. That's good. That's good. We should, maybe we should reintroduce that fashion. It would help the salmon out. <laughs> so uh, in, in your book, you identify the fact that there is uh, all six of the Pacific salmon are, in, are uh, present in the Russian Far East, uh, including the cherry salmon, uh, which yes. we don't have here in North America. Um, and you describe the genealogy and the history of the salmonids in terms of who came first and which species branched out. Could you provide us a little description of that, please? Uh, now, uh, the scientists think that Atlantic salmon is one of the oldest anadromous uh, salmon. Uh, during some warmer areas, Atlantic salmon or its ancestor managed to go around North America because it was much warmer several million years ago into the Pacific. And in, in the Pacific, first came uh, the steelhead and cutthroat trout, which were the first to divide from the ancestor of, um, of Atlantic salmon. The next one was cherry salmon, which is re a real link in between Pacific, true Pacific salmon and steelhead. You see, Russian scientists don't agree with North American scientists that steelhead and uh, castro trout belong to the Ancarinthus genus, to Pacific salmon. Right. We think that the salmon which die after spawning is Ancarinthus, and those which not necessarily die after spawning could spawn out to seven times are belonging to different genes. We, we name it Parasalmo. Parasalmo. So cherry salmon is something in between. It's a link, it's a first, it's Pacific salmon number one, the most ancient one. It had lots of things common with Atlantic salmon or steelhead, even though it is dying after the first spawn. Even the, the way how you catch uh, cherry salmon with flies, it's exactly like steelhead or Atlantic salmon fishing, mm -hmm. not like fishing for Pacific salmon. Okay. Cherry salmon doesn't hit big attractor uh, patterns. It likes small flies, uh, which should resemble the food which is now available in the river. It's a lot similar to steelhead or to Atlantic salmon fishing. And classic Atlantic salmon flies work well for cherry salmon. Okay. And the same, same technique as well? Same, more, very uh, uh, similar. Ex the only difference is that cherry salmon is not coming to the surface. Okay. It's biting deep, so you fish with sink tips always. 
or using nymphing technique. But yes. all the rest is more like uh, Atlantic salmon or uh, steelhead fishing. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, cherry salmon is spending much longer time in freshwater. It's entering uh, mostly in June, July, sometimes in May, but the spawning in September. So several months in the river. And it's really interested in what's happening around it. And even trying to grab food. Uh, during my research, I found two times I found food in stomachs of cherry salmon, of anadromous cherry salmon, swallowed food. In one case, it was a scud, so it could be swallowed in the estuary. But in one case, it was a caddis uh, stonefly larva. Okay. So it was definitely taken and swallowed in fresh water. Interesting. And you cannot find something like this in other Pacific salmon. Right, right. So when there is, for instance, pink salmon smolts in the river, you catch cherry salmon with imitations of those smolts with tiny streamers. Mm. When there are uh, insects, you catch them with nymphs. Okay. So you are matching the hedge to catch a salmon, which is uncommon for pinks or coho. That's right. That's right. So, so after, salmon. after the cherry salmon, where does the family tree move from there? After what? So after the so, cherry salmon, where do ah, we, where, where does the genealogy uh, move from there? Ah, what's happening? All Pacific salmon uh, were evolving from, you see, all salmonids were evolving from a true freshwater fish into fish which could be entering estuaries or uh, feed along the sea coast for several months mm -hmm. like steelhead or no, but like uh, castro trout or chars like mm -hmm. dolly warden char okay and they were evolving into lower and uh, to a lower and lower level of connection with freshwater this means uh, coho and sockeye could have freshwater landlocked stocks. They have dwarf males, and they spend lots of time in freshwater. Chinooks could be same way, and some stocks are leaving the river immediately after hatching in May and spend most of the life in the ocean. Chum and pinks are living in spring, on summer, and most of their life is in, in the ocean. And pinks are even not feeding in fresh water. Yes. This means that pink salmon is the only salmonid which doesn't have a par stage, doesn't have par marks. So we have, in case of Typical salmon, there is a egg, alvin, then par, smolt, and then the sea fish coming from the ocean. In case of pink salmon, we have a egg, alvin, smolt. Tiny pinks don't have par marks. They are smolts. 
eggs and then smoke. Interesting. Yeah. And then the most sorry, the most interesting thing with pink salmon is there it's not one species of pink salmon, but two. Hmm. Okay. Pinks of odd year and pinks of even year are not only different stocks, they are different species. Hmm. It's a tradition to list them under one name and one scientific name. But uh, some scientists try to to make a hybrid of pinks of even year. Uh, so eggs from even year, but frozen sperm from pink salmon from odd year. And, and these hybrids, this, these hybrids, they have uh, some genetical issues. And this means that they are real species. For instance, in the uh, in Russia, we have stocked pink salmon in the Kola Peninsula, in the northwest of the country near Norway, and they have big success with the odd year populations. Every second year, lots of pinks are coming into rivers of Norway and uh, northeast, northwestern Russia, but the even year population could could not reproduce in that area. So there are some things which are make it really di distinct from odd, odd year population. So there are different species of pink salmon. Interesting, interesting. And then, so why do you think that the cherry salmon never uh, managed to establish itself on the Pacific coast of North America? Oh. Uh, it is one of the riddles which I cannot solve. Another riddle is why the distribution of rainbow trout is so unique. It's everywhere from Alaska into California, everywhere and every and each river. For instance, if you have a river with char, Pacific salmon, you will for sure have a steelhead and rainbow trout in that river. If the conditions are fine for pinks and char, rainbow trout could easily survive there. But in Russian Far East, it's not like this. Rainbow trout is limited to Kamchatka Peninsula and one river in another island in the Sea of Okhotsk, and that's it. And steelhead in Russia is limited to several rivers, several dozen of rivers in the northwest of Kamchatka Peninsula, period. <laughs> I don't know, nobody knows, and this is a riddle, why rainbow trout cannot live in the big and small rivers on the Sea of Okhotsk and Sea of Japan and Bering Sea, where we have plenty of char and Pacific salmon and no rainbows. And no steelhead in excellent salmon rivers in the Magadan area, for instance. And we have stray steelhead over there, sometimes 
they enter. So they could easily establish a population, but they don't do it on some reason. I don't know why. It's, it's very interesting. Salmon is also a riddle. Or cutthroat trout, which was is uh, numerous in North America, but cannot on why cannot it cross? It has a Syrian form. Why cannot it cross the strait and go into rivers of Kamchatka? Nobody knows. That's interesting. You could only guess, but it's probably the history. Probably the history. Perhaps something to do with the glaciation, uh, something along yes. those lines. Yeah, yes. that's interesting. Well, it's 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 good good that we don't know everything, and there's still some questions that uh, yet uh, are answered. Otherwise, it would be A boring. lots of questions for the future scientists to there think about. Go. There you go. So, which brings us to the great Hucho Taiman. Um, can you please describe uh, the physical attributes of the salmon for us and, and maybe some of its uh, origins as well? Uh, Siberian, uh, ah, first of all, there are five species of taimen in the world. Five species. One is uh, European taimen living in the Danube basin. basin. It's uh, Austria. Czech Republic, Serbia, Slovenia, etc. Upper reaches some rivers of belonging to the Black Black Sea drainage. It's a huge river, a huge fish, uh, could be over 100 pounds. It's very similar in appearance to Siberian diamond and in the ecology as well. The only difference is that Siberian diamond has red tail. And uh, European diamond has its tail is kind of uh, yellowish and green. All the rest is very similar. Uh, Siberian diamond, the biggest, uh, over 200 pounds, some specimens. Then we have two more. Uh, very rare diamond. One is a Chinese diamond. It's a right tributaries to the Yangtze River in Sichuan. Uh, that uh, fish is up to one meter long, at least. It's a true diamond. Its numbers are very low now, as far as I know. And not very many scientists were able to see that fish. Yeah, this fish is a, a sign that not very long ago, the black conifer forests were from Yangtze to Siberia. It was one, one part of the forest. Now it's separated by the deserts. And as far as I know, there are some birds over there which are very similar to Siberian birds. Not only taimen, but also some birds. Like hazel grouse or nutcracker in those mountains. Another species is a Korean taimen. 
which was described by a Japanese scientist in 1928. Uh, and since that time, as far as I know, it was never ever caught by a scientist because it's uh, inhabiting the Yalu River at the border between North Korea and China. And that area is not accessible for the Western scientists since the 1990s, since 1920s. It was not accessible. It was always war in that area. Always war or some problems with on the border. So now we don't know if this fish is still existing or it's already extinct. Probably it is existing, at least on the Korean side, in some uh, left tributaries to the Yellow River. But it's still waiting for somebody being able to get a permit, permission to go there and see if it's still existing. It's, uh, I think, the most uh, interesting, most unknown salmonid of the world. Korean diamond, Huho Ishikawa. It's a, it's a uh, future expedition, maybe. Oh, yeah. I would love to go there. Maybe a little difficult to arrange that politically, but I uh, would certainly be an a interesting little, trip. yeah, a little difficult, a little, a little sensitive. Difficult. But probably Korea will, uh, if the condition, if the political issues will warm up, Korea will grant uh, permission to go and see. They could be really proud if they have protected. I hope so. Yes, yes, they should be proud of this. That would be good news. Yeah. And then I guess so, the last one will be the sea run. Yeah, the last one will be the sea run, which is not a true diamond. It does okay. not belong to the Hucho uh, genus. It's a different genus. Uh, Russian scientists think it's a parahucho. And from the genetical point of view, it's not a relative, not a close relative to Siberian diamond. Mm. It's a different fish different fish, which is more a closer, has closer relations to Atlantic salmon. It's a, an, an anadromous salmonid, which uh, is using a similar ecological niche to diamond. So the appearance is just because it's feeding by big prey. It could eat salmon, could eat some other marine and freshwater fish. The ecology of this fish is not like Pacific salmon. It's more like char or uh, coastal rainbow or coastal catcher trout. So mm. it's sitting in the river, wintering in the river, spawning in spring, then going out into the ocean, but not necessarily because lots of fish, especially in big rivers and big lakes, are staying in fresh water. If there is enough food, they don't have to go out. And then in the fall, they enter. From August into November, they enter the river and spend winter in the river. And this diamond is now in pretty bad shape. It used to be numerous in Japan, in the Russian Far East, in many places, both in Primoria and in Sakhalin Island. 
but now there are several only three four rivers where it's still uh, common in Sakhalin and several rivers in Hokkaido in Japan and that's it and two rivers in the mainland of the uh, Russian Far East two three rivers where it's still in decent numbers and that's it so this species is we could say it has a risk of extinction the main cause is over harvesting by as a bycatch by commercial salmon fisheries it's intercepted by commercial fisheries and lots of fishermen are not released as they should that's it yeah that sounds like the plight of our steelhead uh, on this coast with uh, yes. inter interception of the commercial fishery yes same yeah it's same so then if we look at the the hucho taimen um we, if we learn a little bit more about them in terms of the life cycle, maturation age, their habitat, and uh, perhaps we you know we deal with some of the threats to their abundance. Yeah, we, we have the same, the same here, same here. Uh, even the size are of several stocks of salmon is now decreasing. Partly, partly it could be caused by changes in the ocean. And partly uh, by fishing, by fishing by gillnets, because okay. gillnets tend to uh, kill, to select uh, bigger, bigger, uh, bigger salmon. Yes. Smaller are passing gillnets. And what's yes. happening, for instance, uh, in Kamchatka, the size of Chinook and Koha is going down. For instance, Chinook is about uh, four inches shorter than they used to be 20, 30 years ago, average. And even interspecific relations are changing. For instance, cherry salmon in Kamchatka is pretty small. It's the size of pink salmon. It's running early. Uh, the, the run is about the same time. It's June, May, June. So it's the same time as Sokai and Chinooks are running in Kamchatka. At this time, at the time, the locals are fishing with gillnets for Chinook and for Sokai. Cherry salmon is passing those gillnets because nobody is using nets uh, suitable for pink salmon that early there is no need to do it so almost 100 percent of so of cherry salmon is surviving okay and it has less competition from par of chinook sockeye and coho in the rivers because of over harvesting of all those species so now uh, the numbers of cherry salmon in some rivers in kamchatka are maybe several, maybe 10 times higher, maybe 20 times higher than it used to be. Ah, that's interesting. The ratio of coho par to cherry salmon par in 1984, when I was making the, some research there, was about 20 coho to one uh, cherry salmon par in the river. Now it's vice versa. 
So cherry salmon is now really flourishing in the conditions when the people are killing too many Chinooks and Cocos. Yeah, that's interesting. We, we certainly have seen the same thing on this coast with the effect of the gillnet causing a selection of smaller fish yes. and and uh, on particularly yep. yeah and particularly in Grills. those migrations where they they require to go much longer distance that smaller body size uh, yep. particularly in the fraser river has become a major detriment mm -hmm. because they simply don't they don't have the energy to make it to the uh, spawning grounds anymore with that sure. smaller body size sure. sure so it's become a problem yeah. uh yeah. so sorry carry on ah there are for instance uh, the the biggest chum salmon was entering the Amur River up to 30 plus pounds. Oh, wow, that's a nice chum. chum. Huge. And they were running up to 2,000 miles upriver because small chum cannot do it. Yes. And now this selection is making chum smaller. And first of all, there is no need for the fish to go that far because everything will be intercepted by Chinese fisheries along the river. It's also a selection, not too good. No, no. Well, which which has a will have a uh, impact in terms of the nutrient cycling in those far off reaches of those river systems now. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So if, 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 everything depends on salmon in 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 in, the, in those rivers. Everything yes. depends, including the forests. Yes, yes. Yeah, we have the same issues here. Same. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if we look at the time and then, um, what is their life cycle like? Are they, how long, how old are they before they spawn? And, and typical, sub, typical Siberian timon is, uh, uh, is living in big size rivers and it's a migrating fish. It's uh, moving up for spawning and uh, wintering, lots of fish is wintering in the main river, like in the Amur or Lena, it's a, in, in all big Siberian rivers. So in winter, for instance, in Amur, you could catch diamond in winter through the ice, yeah. but not yeah. in summer because the water will be above 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. So it's a migrating fish. It's uh, the spawning could be only after the fish will reach the size of 70 centimeters. So it okay. should be six to seven years old, at least. And the fish could live up to probably 100 years. Oh, wow. The biggest uh, recorded, the age of time and recorded by scientists was over 50. But that fish was not the biggest. So I would say that 100 years is a good estimate. It's a long living fish. It's why it's so vulnerable. Very easy to over harvest fish of which is really needs to live for a long time. Yes, yes. And then what sort of habitat are they living in? Are these uh, swift flowing rivers or slower rivers? Anytime, any type rivers. Okay. What it needs, it needs some 
gravel and some current for spawning. But it could be, it's not a typical salmonid, it's entering bays a lot. It's entering lakes connected with the rivers. It's quite often it's spending a long time in backwater with almost no current, especially during the floods. So you could expect to catch diamond in uh, any type of water from a steelhead type water, like uh, roaring rapid to pike type water. Okay. It's a slough with some weeds and big trees uh, in the water, big logs, and deep then, holes, etc. So very many different habitats it could be uh, covering. And in, in many rivers, in the rivers where the diamond is the biggest, it's uh, feeding mostly, most of its food is getting from Pacific salmon. Okay. Because a diamond over uh, 30 kilograms will be eating adult salmon, like and, chump salmon. And when you say they're eating the adult salmon, are they waiting until they're almost dead? Swallowing. From no, no, swallowing them. 30 so plus kilogram fish, big one. Yeah. 30 and plus so kilogram fish could catch and swallow a, a chum of about, I don't know, three, four kilograms. And I know cases when two of such salmon were found in the stomach of a diamond. Wow. I've seen diamond uh, chasing, uh, chasing salmon, <laughs> trying to catch it. Interesting. So it looks like a submarine. Yeah, big, big bow wake and. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then through when the salmon aren't running, what are their primary food sources then? Uh, they will be eating anything available from uh, any fish it could catch and also mammals and birds. Okay. It's a top predator which will be, is ready to swallow everything. Lots of ducklings. Uh, sometimes muskrats, lots of mice, anything which is not too, not, not too big could be eaten by diamond. There are rumors that uh, uh, a dog swimming across a river was killed, drowned by diamond. Wow. By a big one. I don't know. Uh, just a fisherman never story. Seen yeah, it's one of the one of the stories, but uh, these stories are not are probably based on some things like I know that the muskrats were found in the stomachs of time. Yeah, could you imagine imitating a muskrat with a fly? <laughs> be a, a tough a tough cast. <laughs> yes, yes, you need a twenty five weight fly rod yeah. for that. <clears throat> yes, yes. Um, and then what's the greatest threat to the abundance of the uh, timon right now? Oh, <clears throat> the biggest threat is uh, overharvesting. Yeah. Because many people in Siberia are not releasing it. It's still a fish for to catch and eat for many people. Also, 
in some regions it's uh, placer mining and okay. other industrial activities like coal mining oil and gas etc so pollution and, and, of the rivers but the most most threat is overfishing right okay okay and is that uh, I, I thought that the timon was protected in, uh, for it's not supposed uh, to be harvested no it's uh, not protected in regions where it's still common okay it's protected in the south of the far east in some regions of southern siberia and sea uh, run timon in sakhalin so in the regions where it's really under threat it's protected okay but in the north of siberia in the north of the far east it's not protected okay. now in habarovsk region you could legally kill one fish a day yeah. it should be uh, longer than 70 centimeters okay i think okay. it should be prohibited to kill but not quite there yet no yeah yeah so if we shift gears then for a moment and, and look at the uh, Turgursky Nature Reserve, uh, I understand that this initiative was led by uh, Russian businessman Alexander Abramov. Abramov. Um, he was instrumental in the creation of this uh, reserve, and, and you had some part to play as well. Um, can, can we take a look at this and, and what events led up to, to the creation of this reserve? Uh, there are two uh, protected uh, territories in the Tugur drainage. One of this, one of them is this uh, reserve, which is in the middle reaches of the river. It was created in about 2015. And it's a, a state reserve uh, protecting mostly salmon, salmon and diamond. But upstream from there, it's a territory leased by Mr. Abramov. It's a leased territory leased for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, maybe 50 years, I don't know. And that territory is protected, seriously protected since 2004, which is very good because that area was heavily poached by caviar poachers in 1990s and in the, in the beginning of 21st century. I've been there and I've seen the camps were in the open and the banks of the river, there were camps of uh, illegal uh, fishermen, illegal fishermen which were just killing salmon and lots of time and as well with nets. Not anymore. So the river is now seriously protected, it's good. We have issues with placer mining, which we cannot stop yet, but it's not very serious yet. There were, I know that there were some attempts to do some tree cutting in that area, but Mr. Abramov has stopped it. Okay. And where, where is that? To do it. Where is that placer? The placer is happening in the Turgur specifically, or is it upstream? Middle, middle reaches, middle reaches. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's not polluting the entire river. Okay. okay. Still, it should be stopped. Yes. Yes. Now, when the the Turgur um, Tugur. has an inter 
Tugur. T U G U R. Tugur has a, has an interesting water the way the 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 river moves. It almost does a, a one hundred and eighty degree turn and folds back on itself. Yeah, this yeah, it's called Tugur in one of the native tongues. It's uh, means a knee. A knee. Okay. Yes, that means that it looks like human knee. It makes this 170 degrees turn going southwest and then northeast. Yes. And the river is changing drastically at that turn. It's becoming swift. Okay. The, the main source of the Togur, uh, the name, the river is Kanin. It's a, like a forest river. Okay. It has some riffles, but long pools. It's quiet, dark water river. And then it goes around that ridge, turns 170 degrees. And then it's very swift, very active river valley, which is destroying forests and piling just thousands of dead trees on the banks. Uh, yes. Very dangerous area, very hard to navigate with a motorboat. Yes. Yes. And then it looks like the, the sort of mid stretches of the Tugur, um, the river course has moved to the east uh, and there's an old or older river course towards the west. It, it's a typical for any inland delta of a big river. When the river is depositing huge piles of sediments, which are clogging the current and the river is trying to go, make a detour and making this, building this alluvial fan. If you look at the map of the Tugur, you see a huge alluvial fan, which is becoming wider and wider. So the river is traveling sometimes to the left side of that fan, sometimes to the okay. right side. It's where the next flood will make it a new way. Right, right, okay. Okay. So it's always changing. The local uh, fishing guys are telling that after any major flood, which could be several in one summer, they have to navigate the river as if it's a new one. Uh, okay. They take chainsaws and cut some dead trees deposited by the river to, to be able to navigate the river. Uh, yes, and it's yes. new because sometimes they will tell you, we see one year ago, we were going one kilometer to the left, different channels, which are now completely dry. Yeah. Interesting. The river is an active river valley. Interesting. So what, what sort of positive outcomes have uh, you seen since the creation of the Tugorsky nature reserve? Oh, you see the nature reserve is, quite young it's only about five years old but the creation of that the lease of the territory to the upper part of the Tugur to Mr. Abramov has made very good impact on salmon there are lots of salmon much more than it used to be in the year 2000 for instance my first trip to the Tugur was in in the year 2001 and at that time, the numbers of both 
salmon and diamond were much lower. Now the river is uh, well protected. And that's uh, mainly the poaching pressure has been reduced? Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, that's good. That's good. So our, our conversation would not be complete today if we didn't spend some time uh, discussing the fly fishing techniques and tackle for taman. Um, and, you know, since we're talking about the Tuagur, let's, uh, let's focus on that. Um, and uh, maybe, maybe we should look at the different seasons of the river, uh, beginning from, you know, when, when we can start to fish there uh, as, as the ice goes until the end of the season. There are three main season, seasons of uh, catching diamond. Uh, we could say four seasons because uh, in Russia it's caught through the ice as well. Okay. Uh, I don't like this idea. I've never fished for diamond in, in winter because it's uh, hard to release fish and uh, the fish will be killed, which is not good. So spring fishing is before the, the ice flood. There is a period, which is not every year, maybe every second year, when the river uh, has already destroyed the ice on main, on main waterway. But the ice is still on the banks, in the pools, in the, in the sloughs, it's ice. But then if we have a break in warm weather, if there is a cold weather for a while, there will be no snow melting. The temperature will be around zero, a little above freezing, but not too much. And the river will be still clear for a week. And that's a very good period for fishing for diamond. You have to be lucky uh, not to have warm weather right uh, in, in April. So the snow will be not be mel melting. And this period, the best, the best period could be 10, 15 days earlier or later. So it could be from April 25th till May 10th. It depends on the year. But it's a very good period. Taimen are hungry after winter. Then they will be spawning and around mid June, around June the 10th, starts the second period of diamond fishing. It's a early summer fishing. Uh, it's a good time. The fish is hungry. They're eager to bite flies and lures. The only issue could be rains. If you're not lucky with weather, there will be, there are quite often, about every second year, major rains come by around mid-June. And then the river will the river will be spoiled for fishing for a long time. So some years they are fishable in June, sometimes some years you could barely fish. And still this is a, this is a good period. And I enjoy it more than in the fall when the fish is uh, eating uh, salmon. So it's not very hungry and pretty picky, hard to catch. Uh, in summer, from mid-July till the end of August, it's mostly too hot. Quite often, it's rainy, 
So it's not the best season. Could be good fishing in July and August for time and could be not very good. It depends on season, depends on the river, etc. And the fall, it's a very good season, is considered the fall from mid-September till November. And that uh, the fall the fall season is difficult because the fish are focused on uh, the adult salmon. Uh, it's more difficult. Quite often, the, the fish will be not biting. Very difficult. Sometimes very difficult to get a bite. But the fish is heavier, which is good for the record. <laughs> for instance, my biggest fish uh, was uh 33 kilograms but according its length in the fall it will be 40 kilograms mm. it was almost five feet long so the changes in the weight of timing between spring and late fall are about 20 25 percent so they are in rivers like Tugur, where there is salmon, they are taking most of their food, most of their food supply during August, September, October, November, when there is salmon in the river. And they also, smaller time, and also eat decomposing bodies of salmon. And also they are depending on other resident fish like grayling, uh linoc or siberian trout which are also feeding on salmon eggs and carcasses sure. so the numbers of bait fish for tamen is much higher in the rivers with salmon that's good that's good and then so uh, is there a particular structure that you look for um or, or or different types of water that you you aim to to pursue when you're when you're fishing for timon or they have to cover the entire river uh, no normally what i'm trying to do i'm trying to look for timon it's in, in its dining room not in its bedroom right uh, timon which is in a in a big holding water, like deep pools, quite often it's not active. Sometimes you have to, when there is no activity in riffles, in feeding areas, the feeding areas are mostly shallow. Okay. It's close to the, under the riffles or above the riffles, where the current is start, starting to speed up. It's uh, narrow trenches in very shallow riffles. The trench could be four feet deep, and the riffle around it could be knee deep. But in that trench, you could find the timing of, I don't know, over four feet long, could be in four feet of water, just feeding. You will not see it unless it will be chasing uh, small fish into the shallow. But sometimes you see the act some act activities, some rises and splashes. In this case, you definitely should be aiming at a feeding water. But sometimes we have to cover deep pools with sink tips and heavy flies. And then, so what sort of tackle do you prefer to use then when you're fishing um, for them? Typical uh, tackle is double-handed rod. Yeah. Nine or 10 weight double-handed rod or a heavy switch rod. 
single-handed rod is good for anglers which could be using 12 weight for tarpon single-handed 12 weight i'm not strong enough for that so i'm using switch rod, a switch rod yeah i have rebuilt a 12 weight single-handed into a switch rod so okay. i'm using two hands for cast okay okay Okay. And heavy lines, you have to have different lines from uh, floating line, intermediate line, and also heavy sink, heavy sink tips and full sinking lines. Okay. Any line could be used, depending on the depth you have to reach. Okay. And so are, they, are, the, are the timing typically on the bottom or are they suspended above the bottom? They are suspended above the bottom in when the current is not strong okay in strong current they are mostly below the obstacles hiding so behind. they are the diamond is not a not salmon it's not a fish which could be uh, sitting in strong current for a long time it's not like it cannot do it it's a okay. primitive the, the most ancient salmonid hmm. tens of millions years old Okay. It's the most ancient. Taimen and Linok are the most ancient salmonids according to the genetics, genetics studies. So they are, they like slow water, sometimes stagnant water. The base, the sluice with no current, quite often you could see Taimen just cruising in there. Okay. In the riffles, uh, below the falls, you'll find it, but the location of the fish is always where the current is not is less than two feet per second. And then, so, and then, are they? Do they sort of uh, like steelhead, for instance, really like to be in that maybe three to five feet of water? Uh, do you find the timing uh, or get deeper? Quite often. Or? quite often they are feeding in three to five feet of water quite often we could say three to seven feet of water it's a feeding areas but sometimes you will we'll be catching them in deep holes okay. especially when the fish is not feeding right when you have to go into his bedroom to pull them out exactly exactly yeah yeah and then uh, what are some of your favorite fly patterns uh, imitations of grayling tight on a tube or tight as a as, a, as an intruder okay so they should be at least as long as your palm so at least or sometimes twice longer okay lots of them uh, you uh, timing will be very good time and flies will be those used for masking off. Okay, okay. The only difference is that Taiman is often grabbing fly for the tail. Looks like Pike is intercepting its prey and grabbing it for the head, aiming at the eye. So the hook in the head is fine. But for Taiman, I'm using one hook in the tail, a trailing yes. hook, which is in the, close to the tail of the fly. Because okay. with a pike fly, typical pike flies, uh, quite often you have pools, but uh, the fish is not hooked because right. it's coming from behind to the fly. 
Right, right. And then you, you mentioned earlier that um, more sort of subdued colors as opposed to the more natural colors versus attractive In clear colors. water, yes. Okay. In clear water. When the water okay. is dark or a little murky, you could use very bright colors and also black. Black and red is fine. Red and purple, black and red, because the fly should be visible. Bright blue ones work in murky water. But when the water is clear, which is quite often happening, you use imitations of the bait fish. Right, right. So more, more grays and browns, yeah. black. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yellow okay. and pink, like grayling. Right, right. Okay. And then how, how do you approach a run in terms of how you'll fish it? Is it similar to other salmonids where you cover the whole run? you know, step, cast, step, cast, or are you targeting certain structures only? Sometimes it is done sometimes. First of all, when I come to a run, uh, it's a typical, is a riffle, which is swift riffle entering a pool. Yes. I come there, there and I, I try to find a location where the timon, the upper, uppermost location where the timon could be sitting. And then I start about uh, 10 meters upstream from there, covering the river. Because sometimes you see action. Sometimes you see some obstacles like logs or big rocks, and then you have to cover them. But quite often it looks quite uniform on the top and you cannot locate the fish. So I see, so here is a drop, could be four feet, and the fish could be here. I go 10 meters upstream and start covering it because quite often you are surprised by finding fish further up. Probably there is a narrow trench which you cannot see in the riffles in this all this broken water. Yes. But the fish likes to enter this narrow trench. You know those trenches in riffles. Salmon like to sit in there. Right. Sure. Same with and same with steel. Timon is also because. Timon knows that any small fish moving downstream will be brought by the current into that trench or will right. be trying to hide there and Timon is sitting there. <sighs> so you start further up and then you move down uh, covering the water with, with a big fly. When, it, when it's shallow, you could use a mouse imitation or any streamer on a floating line. When you, if you see activity in, in the pools, you cover these pools with the mouse imitation as well. Because the activity means the fish is active, it's close to the surface, it's looking at the surface. For instance, after a week of hot weather in summer, you have a rain and some colder weather. The first day will be great for time and fishing with mice, with the mouse imitation, because the, the fish knows that many, you see, it's a fish is living for a long time. It has lots of information what's happening and where to find food. So they know when, when the river is starting to rise, when they, there is a, the first ones flooded will be small creeks and they will, bring, will be bringing lots of uh, tiny animals, yeah. mice and frogs, etc., small fish into the main river. So the diamond will be gathering along the inlets. 
close to the inlets. And it's a great, uh, great period to fish with mice. And so that's a floating line. It's fun. Floating line and the mouse imitation. And then you are stripping them? You, you let them swing okay. when the current is still fast. And then you strip it in along the bank. Okay. Okay. You, and, then... and then you make another cast. And it's one of the, it's the best, the most exciting way to fish for timing. First of all, you should not, you should just, you should, should not hook immediately. It's same yes. like fishing for salmon with a dry fly. And Taiman is often slapping the fish, killing it with a, with a tail. With a mouse or your, your swimming mouse, it's not swallowed immediately. Quite often, it's first slapped by the tail. So you see the tail. If you hook, you, there is, you, you just lost the fish. Uh, yes. So you cast, retrieve, and you see that your mouse is skimming making a V-shaped wake. And then you see a huge tail, like a shower, just slapping it on the top, a bright red tail. And then you stop and wait and wait three, four seconds sometimes. And then oh. there is a pool. Yes. Uh, yes. That, that must be something when you see that big tail something, come out. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so how, how big a mouse, like a, uh, you know, accurate mouse? Uh, it could be the size of the actual mouse, medium to big size. So it could be uh, 10, 12 centimeters long and could be the gear fishermen in Russia use imitations of squirrels of okay. natural size. Okay. So they could be 35 centimeters long with a long tail. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. So it could be pretty big on the surface or under the surface, a pretty okay. big fly up to, don't know, 30 centimeters. Okay. It okay. should have big head, so it will make a wake. Mm -hmm. And it's the biggest, the most interesting way to catch time. And my biggest on the dry fly was uh, 50 pounds, 23 wow. kilograms. Wow, wow. That's a, that's a big, big fish on the dry fly. Yeah, it's a big fish. And so you're using uh, deer hair uh, and foam mouse imitation. Yes, deer, yeah. typical. Any any surface fly will do. Yeah. Any surface fly. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's interesting. It should and be then, big any, enough. Any any other um, any other anything else along the, the fishing tips and techniques that we missed here that you think we should cover? Uh, no, I think. Uh, Heavy tackle, the tippet uh, should be pretty strong. For the record uh, setting, IGFA requires that the fly tackle should be, uh, should have a, a tippet not heavier than 20 pounds. Yeah. They don't consider, yeah, it's uh, something obsolete, which I think the rule, too light. yeah, too light, yeah. not too light, very big fish up to the over 90 pounds were landed with such tackle. The current uh, time and record is, I think, 48 kilograms. Mm. On, tw on 20 with pounds? A, on, a, on a flight, yeah, on 20 pounds. But uh, I don't like the idea of uh, having a big fish in a river with lots of log jams on a 20 pound test. So I'm, I'm not aiming at the record and I'm using 30 to 40 pound test. Yeah, yeah. I think I'd be happier with uh, 30 or 40. 
exactly. Exactly. But uh, it should be just a strong tackle, big fly. And then you look for the fish. It's, it's a feeding fish. If you find it, you will catch it. Okay. The, okay. the problem is that there are not very many rivers where such fish is in, a, in good numbers. There are still good rivers in, in Siberia, tributaries to Lena and Yenisei. There are good rivers in the Far East, not very many of them. Yes. It's a pity. Yeah, it's a, pity, it's a great yeah. fish. And the, and the Turgur stands out now as one of those because of the protected area. Turgur is number one in the world, for sure. Okay. Okay. According, not by the number of fish, the numbers are high, but in some places you could catch more fish a day, for instance, in, in good rivers in Mongolia. Because in Mongolia it's easier, it's shallow, it's mostly surface fishing, it's very clear. So if you find time and it will be, uh, be able to see your fly. In Togur it's sometimes very deep, sometimes slow. And hard to cover the, the pool, which is, I don't know, up to seven meters deep, wide, has lots of log jams. And many pools we don't fish at all. We don't fish ever because they have so many trees. Sure. You just can, you just could see some fish in it sometimes, but you can yeah. never. I remember one pool in the Munikan River, a tributary to Gur, where uh, we were floating in a raft and then two logs lying on the bottom just started to move upstream <laughs> and then then they hid among other real trees so we couldn't catch those fish yeah yeah well, that's good so uh, mikhail what, what has kept you motivated then for all these years in your quest to protect and conserve wild fish and, and the places that they inhabit what's been your motivation Oh, uh, I just like the wild nature. I like fish and I really want it to exist forever. And in many cases, you have to protect it, uh, the environment from the humans. Lots of people are not, mm, not suitable to be in outdoors. They don't behave well. <laughs> I think that's uh, true of humans so, everywhere. If they don't, some of them don't behave well wherever they are. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, becoming more uh, in tune with the environment and the, and the, the wild places to find sure. a proper, proper place in there. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. This is why I like the Far East. Right. It's still untamed in many areas. Yeah, that's that's good. I, I, I look forward to the to the uh, the visit next year and uh, spending some You're time with you. You're welcome. I hope you'll be able to come. Yeah, well, you know, unless there's some uh, uh, more craziness with this COVID situation, uh, you know, we've got our six anglers. Uh, yeah, that are... COVID and also uh, international relations. I think I, I would hope that uh, those problems between the Russia and the West are behind us now. And that, uh, you know, we can kind of... Mm. It looks sure. like uh, the West is making them worse by implying more, more economic uh, pressure on Russia. Right, right. 
Well, we, we went from a, a maybe a more, uh, uh, the, the Trump administration was a little bit more interested in peace and the present mm -hmm. uh, administration seems to have some yes. other priorities. So it's, that's disappointing. Yeah, sure. That's disappointing. Well, uh, if we don't have any problems, we'll definitely be there. And I look forward to uh, uh, spending some time on the water with somebody who's spent so much time in that region and uh, looking forward to uh, uh, fishing beside you. Yeah. I would love to uh, show me, show you some of our rivers. Would love yes. to. Yes. Yes. Well, I look forward to that. And of course, you've uh, now uh, released your latest book, The Fly Fishing Russia, The Far East. Uh, if listeners are interested, uh, where is the best place for them to go to uh, purchase a copy? Uh, they could find my page at the Facebook. Okay. And there is a, there is information there. And there is also a page at the Facebook, which has the same name as my, if they just make a search in uh, Facebook or in internet. Okay. Fly fishing Russia, the Far East. Okay, I'll put a link It'll in the- Easily find the link. There is a, the firm in United States, which is uh, selling the books. Okay. Retailing okay. and wholesaling. Okay. But they well, were printed in Canada. Yes, yes. So I, I will I get still to... don't have a copy. I don't have you, a copy. You don't have a copy yet. No. Well, it's it's nicely done. I mean, there's some, some great pictures in there, and uh, I enjoyed going through it, and some, mm -hmm. some good scientific information, and uh, your your tales and and uh, your adventures. Uh, it's a very interesting, mm -hmm. very interesting read. I think any, anybody who's interested in, in fly fishing and, and the salmonid resource worldwide, I think we'll will find some value in uh, buying a copy. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I, this book was uh, I was writing for about forty years. Okay, okay. It and so what the information which is collected during long trips to different rivers. Yes, yes. And so what's next for you then? You have other other writing projects on the go? Right or what? now I am finishing. Uh, I, I have finished a, another book, uh, Fly Fishing Russia, The Kola Peninsula. Ah, okay. And when can it's we expect another, that? Another great region in uh, in russia for fly anglers yes another great region mostly atlantic salmon and brown trout yes uh, the book in russian is ready and it's now at the printing house so i hope it will be ready by summer and fall in russian okay the english version is already translated but it will take some time but i hope by the winter it might be printed okay. about the Kola Peninsula. Okay. And the well, next one, which is I'm working on, is on Grelink. Okay. okay. The project which I name now Grelinks of the World. Okay. So, and you still find some time to fish uh, out in the water amongst all the writing? Yes. Now, right now, I'm shifting from a writing mode into fishing mode. Okay, as the ice melts and the, and the yes, season yes. warms up. Oh, I, I do some ice fishing, but not much. But in winter, I'm mostly writing or traveling to warmer countries. <laughs> that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a good idea. 
Okay, Dr. Skopitz, well, it's, it's been a pleasure to chat with you this afternoon uh, or your morning. Um, I, I uh, will, will include some notes uh, in the show or some links in the show notes there to your, to your book. And um, I guess if any, any of the listeners are interested in, in uh, coming for a, an expedition to the Turgur, um, looking to book a Tugur, second Tugur, sorry. Tugur, not, not Turgur. Tugur. Turgur. Tugur, no, no R in the middle. No R, oh, Tugur, Tugur. No R in the middle, yes. Tugur, okay, Tugur. So if any if anybody's interested, they can get in touch with me. We're looking to get another week booked there and spend some more time on the water. So we'll leave it there for now, sir. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm sure we'll be in touch between now and next June. Sure. Sure. Okay. Many, many thanks, sir. You have yourself a great day. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.